0: Well, hey, Trace Church, my name is Jake, and it is my sincere honor to be with you here today. Uh, Eight weeks ago, our family moved from Indianapolis, Indiana, all the way out to Santa Barbara, California, to plant a brand new church. And I'm going to tell you more of our story here in a little bit. But from the bottom of my heart, from one church planter to a church plant, I want to tell you something sincerely. You guys are weird. All right, like this is not normal what you guys are a part of. Like this is so crazy. It's weird how you are inviting your friends and seeing them get uh, connected to Jesus. It's weird how committed you guys are in creating this culture. Uh, It's weird that you are loving the city so well and I hope that you never stop being weird. I mean, you guys showed up to church and there was snow on the ground. Where I'm from, if it gets below 60, it's a state of emergency. All right, they call it the National guard and you all just shrugged it off and came to church like this is amazing and it is so exciting to watch what God is doing in and through the people of Trace. Now I believe that this happens because you guys are really well led. In fact, I've gotten to know Aaron over the last couple months and I can vouch for him that he is the same guy off stage as he is when he's up here. Uh, He loves Jesus and his family and you guys in that order and that is the right order and he is leading you really well. You are in great hands. And I've known Corey for even longer. Corey and I grew up together playing baseball. We grew up at the same church. Corey was the guy that your mom used against you growing up. Have you ever known one of those guys? Like anytime that you did something wrong, it was always like, why can't you be more like that Corey Bullock, all right? So we hate him. Uh, That's really the answer to that. No, he's awesome. He's been that good of a guy for that long. And so you guys are in such good hands and would you just join me in appreciating your leaders and what they're doing here, Trace? It's awesome. It is awesome. Man. Now, over the last couple of weeks, Trace has been in this series called Fight. And I don't know what your church background is. I don't maybe you don't have any church background. I know that where I come from fight and church were not often associated. In fact, church was the place that when you showed up, you pretended that you weren't fighting. Like, that was basically what church was. I don't know about your experience this morning. We have three little kids at home. We have an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a three-year-old. And getting ready for church on Sunday morning can often look like fight night in Vegas, all right? Like, that's, you do the mom and dad thing where you talk through your teeth. You ever been that mad? So you don't yell and wake up the neighbors, but you talk through your teeth, you say, stop touching your brothers, and no, you cannot take your Legos and get your shoes on the right feet, and if you fuss again, I'm going to stop feeding you, all right, I'm just going to stop giving you food, you will hunt for your food, all right, I do not care anymore, you're going to church, and you're going to like it, all right, and then you show up, and everything's great, everything's so great, and church and fight seems so weird, and if that is you, uh, welcome to the club, Uh, we can even call it fight club, but we'll talk about this one, all right, like it's totally, totally cool. But what we the big idea in this series is that the things that matter most in life, the things that really add value to your experience are going to require a fight. In fact, the things that are worth having at all, you're going to have to fight to get them. And then when you have them, you're actually going to have to fight to keep them. And so we're going to have to fight for really great marriages because it just doesn't happen easily. And we're going to have to fight for authentic friendships where we're vulnerable and honest about our faults and our flaws. You're going to have to fight for that. You're going to have to fight for a generous heart in a culture that says it's all about you. We're going to have to fight to have an impact in our city. And it is the fight worth fighting. Now, here's my pitch to you today. Is that the hardest fight for you to win is the one you don't know you're in. Think about that. The hardest fight for you to ever win is when you don't know that you're actually fighting. That's called a sucker punch. Right? That's what that is. A sucker punch is when you punch the sucker that didn't know he was about to get punched. That's what, uh, that's what happens when you don't know that you're in a fight. Or fellas, uh, that's often sometimes what it can feel like to be dating or be married. All right? you're, you're in a fight. You just didn't know that you were fighting. And maybe you've had that conversation with your girlfriend or your wife like, we're fighting? I didn't know how long we've we been, four days we've been fighting. I had no idea. And if you're having that conversation, you have lost the fight. All right, that's you're just, it's over. It's over. Now, many of us are in, our, in, in this life where uh, we are in a fight and we don't even know it. And if you've ever watched a boxing match or a UFC fight, there's this one telltale sign that a boxer is about to go down. Usually they're tired, they've taken a few hits, and what do they do? What do you know, when you know that someone's about to go down, what do they do? They drop their hands, right? They put their hands down. In fact, it looks a little something like this picture right here. Uh, if you have it there, it's all right if you don't. Uh, and if you're in a fight and you put down your hands, you are vulnerable. You're not playing defense, you're not being able to fight back, and you can often take a punch and go down. And what happens, I think, a lot of us, and maybe you walked in here even today, and you're just kind of walking through life, and you didn't even realize that you were in a fight. And your hands are down, and you're defenseless, and you're not able to protect yourself, and you're not able to fight back, and that's why you're discouraged. That's why you're tired. That's why you're frustrated. And if you walked in here today feeling those very things, then there's good news for you that the Bible actually has a lot to say about the fight that we find ourselves in. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app and you wanna join me, we're gonna be in this book of the Bible called James. You can head that way, it's towards the back of the Bible in the New Testament, and you can follow along with us there. That's where we're gonna hang out most of today. But my pitch to you today, and this is what I believe, is that if you will consider these words from the Bible, consider what God has to say about our lives, he is going to present a very different view of Christianity than many of us have been sold. Again, maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe you did. Either way, we all kind of have this idea as to what Christianity is really supposed to be. And what happens is we get this false version, this unhelpful version of what it means to live for Jesus, and then we have to unlearn that to really learn what God wants for us in the first place. And so today we're going to ask the question, what does God have to say about the way he wants us to live? Now again, the hardest fight to win is the one you don't know you're in. And so step one for us is to admit that you're in a fight. That's the best way that we're going to have to get into this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read this verse from the Bible. And if you're here today and you're not sure where you stand you're not sure if you believe all this stuff, you're not sure if you can agree with this, then this is going to sound a little weird, all right? I'm just kind of giving you a disclaimer, giving you a heads up. In fact, it might even sound a little like science fiction, but here's what I'm asking, all right? I'm not asking you to believe it because I say it. I'm not asking you to believe it because it's gonna end up on this TV screen. I'm just asking you to call a truce for the next few minutes If we can just call a truce with that inner attorney in your head that's always arguing with everything that you hear and just consider, does God have a point? Like, is this possible, what we're about to read? And what might that mean for our lives? And so we're going to read this. It's uh, written by a church planner named Paul to a church he started in a city called Ephesus. And here's what he says to his people. He says, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you might be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For you're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in the dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So Paul is saying you are in a fight. Whether you ever meant to be in a fight, it doesn't really matter. You are in one. He says that we, there is a force in this world that does not want you to have the life that God intended for you. There is a force in this world that does not want you to have financial peace in your circumstances. There is a force in this world that does not want you to have a growing marriage that gets closer day by day. There is a force in this world that wants to distract and discourage you away from living the life that God intended for you. You are in a fight, whether you ever meant to be or not. And then part two of what Paul says is that it is not a fight against the things that we can see and hear and touch. In fact, so many of us, we feel like we're fighting against our circumstances, and Paul says you're fighting against the wrong enemy. Your fight is not against your coworkers who want the same promotion as you. Your fight is not against your classmate that wants to date the same guy or girl as you. Your fight is not against your neighbor who has a nicer TV or a nicer car. Paul, saying you're, you're swinging at the wrong target. There is a force in this world that you can never, neither see nor feel nor hear. And that is the very force. His name is the devil, and he wants to discourage you and distract you away from the, from the life God intended. Now, again, I get that if you're not all in, this can sound pretty crazy. But may I ask you to just consider, is, there, is it possible that there is someone fighting against you? Is it possible that that's why it feels like you have been beaten up and you didn't even know where you were taking the hits? And you're discouraged in your relationships? you're frustrated in your finances, it seems like someone always, someone else always has what you want, and what Paul is saying is there's a reason you feel that way, and because there's an enemy that is actively trying to destroy you, and so again, I'm not asking you to believe it because I said it, or because it was on the screen, I'm just asking you to consider, does that seem true, and what that might that mean for our lives? And so if we're going to be in a fight, the first thing to do is admit that we are in one. We have to do that first, and Paul's made that clear. And when we're, we're in it, whether we admit it or not. Now, the next question is, what after that? Just admitting that I'm in a fight is not enough. Now, so often in the Christian world, the Christian life can be described in defensive terms. Like, uh, basically, the whole... Point of the Christianity is to avoid doing bad stuff. Maybe you've heard that version before. Like avoid this, don't go there, don't talk to them, just listen to that one radio station, not all the other radio stations, that one, and then, then you will be really a good Christian. Where I grew up in Kentucky, it was basically summed up with don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. All right, like that was, that was the world view. And in Kentucky, that really limited the dating pool, all right, there, there wasn't a lot after that. But in reality, the the Christian life is described so much as like, just don't do the bad stuff, and then God will be happy. But if you spend enough time in the Bible, you will find a very different version of Christianity. You see, the good news of Jesus is that he was sent on a rescue mission to save you from something that you had no hope saving yourself from. He saved you from your sin. See, when you and I fall short of the standard that God set, it creates this gap between us and him that there was nothing we could do to close that gap. No amount of good behavior, no amount of avoiding the bad stuff could ever get us in back or right relationship with him. So Jesus came, and he lived the life that you and I could not live, and he gave us the reward that only he could earn, and it is because of that good news that we are forever changed Now, that good news does not lead to a life of just avoiding the bad stuff. In fact, he's going to lead to a life of action. And that brings us to our guy, James. Now, for me, James is one of the strongest arguments for the authenticity of Jesus. Because James was not just any old-fashioned, any ordinary uh, Bible author. He wasn't just this guy that wrote the Bible. Not only did he write this letter in the Bible but he was also the brother of Jesus. All right, just think about that. Like they, they grew up in the same house. They went fishing in the same lakes. They climbed the same trees. I mean, if you thought it was bad me growing up with Corey, imagine Jesus being your brother, all right? That is a high, high standard. Now, how many of you, just a show of hands, how many of you have a sibling? A sibling, step-sibling, all right, look around. Lots of, lots of siblings, all right. Let me ask you guys this question. What would it take for your sibling to convince you that they were the son of God. Just imagine that, right? Like one day, your brother shows up from school and says, hey, by the way, you need to know something. Uh, I am God, all right? I created everything that you see and hear and touch and feel, I uh, one day I'm going to die for your sins and you will worship me, all right? You would look back at them and be like, nah, dude. (laughs) No, like no, I know you, you are not God. But somehow, Jesus lived a life that was so compelling. He lived a life that was so true that even his own brother came to faith. And not only did he come to faith in Jesus, but he was one of the early leaders of the church there in Jerusalem. If Jesus can convince his own brother that he's God, maybe he really is. And watch what James says to his people that he's leading here. He says this in James chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. He says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives, and humbly accept the word God had planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. So here's what James is saying. He's saying, When you are when you're hearing from God, When you're reading the Bible, when you're in an environment like this, when you're having a one-on-one conversation with someone that you trust, and you're hearing from God, be quick to listen, and slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Now, why would James need to make that distinction to you and me and the people that were reading his letter? Why in the world would hearing from God make us want to be quick to speak and quick to get angry? Well, I'm just going to say this for me, and maybe this will sound familiar to you. Sometimes God says things that I wish he hadn't said. Anybody else? Like, it would, have been, it would have been super convenient if he had just left off that whole thing where I'm supposed to love my enemies, but he said it. And there was that time where, like, sometimes he said there were things that in our lives that are out of bounds, and our culture says that they're in bounds, and it makes our lives kind of uncomfortable at times. It would have been really It just would have been easier had God not said that stuff. There are times when God confronts me on stuff that I was really planning on keeping hidden. Like, he confronts me on how my heart is not naturally generous and the kind of man he wants me to be. He confronts me on my quick anger or my impatience with my kids. He confronts me on things. And so what I do is I'm quick to speak and I'm quick to get frustrated with God instead of slowing down and saying, I am who I am, and he is who he is, and so maybe I should listen. So often when we're hearing from God, we act like that person in an argument that, you ever been in an argument with someone that you can just tell they're not even listening to your side? The whole time that you're talking, they're formulating their comeback in the moment. Maybe you're married to that person, I don't know. Like that's, that's kind of what it's, that's often how I treat God. Like, as I'm, as I'm reading it, I'm not asking the question, how can I apply this to my life? I'm so grateful for these difficult truths that God's telling me. Usually the question that I'm asking sounds a whole lot like this, uh, how can I get out of this? If we're just, like, being super honest, that's usually the question that I'm asking when he confronts me on something that I was hoping to keep hidden, how can I get out of this? And James says, slow down. Slow down in your arguments, So slow down in your whatabouts, slow down in all the reasons that you're right and God's wrong. And listen and consider his word. But he says, listening isn't enough. There's more to it. He says in verse 22. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget about what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. James says that the Christian faith is an active faith. The Christian faith is not just about avoiding all the bad stuff. It's about getting in the game. In fact, he says a passive Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. And here's what it comes down to is that those who accept Jesus do something about it. Those who accept Jesus, they do something about it. James is saying, it is impossible for you to truly understand who Jesus is and continue living the same life. It is impossible for you to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and not have anything demonstrably change about who you are. Those who accept Jesus, they do something about it. If we are all in, then it will be impossible to suppress Now, this truth right here in what James has written has sometimes been misunderstood. In fact, over the 2,000 years in the history of the church, people have gotten this and kind of gotten it out of order, and it can be dangerous if we don't understand which one comes first. See, some people hear this and they think, oh, James is telling me that I have to do things so that God will be happy with me. It's not what he's saying, but sometimes it's what we hear. and So we think, if I get my act together, then God will be happy. I can stop doing some of these things then jesus will be pleased that's not what james is saying james is actually saying because you have been accepted and because you have been loved now we live a different life i love the simplicity in which pastor tim keller he tweeted it out and he put it like this he said um he said that religion says i obey therefore i am accepted by god but the gospel says i am accepted by god through christ therefore I obey. Hashtag big difference. See, when we understand which one comes first, it changes everything. The gospel says that Jesus came and he rescued us, not because of anything that we did, not because of our good behavior, not because we were really good at avoiding all the bad stuff. He came in our mess, our daily mess, and he saved us. And that is such good news that it is impossible to remain the same after we accept who Jesus is. So here's, it's a very groundbreaking question, all right? I promise it's going to confuse you. It's going to be very, what are you going to do? All right, what are you going to do? It really doesn't have to be too much more complicated than that. If you have accepted Jesus, what are you going to do? Because James says you can't accept Jesus and stay the same. So here's our family story. I'll tell you our story. Uh, like I said, I, I grew up in church. I was one of those that, like, I'm not even sure I was born in the hospital. I might have been born at the church, right? We were there all the time. We were there every time it opened. And, uh, and we were there because it was really important to mom and dad. And so I kind of embraced it, and I was, like, good at church. I don't know if you knew this, but you can, like, be good at church. Like, you know the answers, you know the verses, you know the songs, and I was, I was really good at it. And then around my student years, my middle school and high school years, I really lost that motivation. And I kind of retreated from the front row to the back row. I became one of the back row kids that was there because mom and dad dropped them off, but not because I wanted to be at all. So, like, shout out to all you in the back row. All right, you're my people. All right, I still, yeah, right there. That's what's up. Someday you could be me. All right. Um, (laughs) Front row to back row. And really in this moment... um, I probably had one foot out the door, one foot out the door in the middle of my high school years to where I just kind of retreated, and I didn't, the gospel didn't mean that much to me, and Jesus didn't mean that much to me, and so I was there because I had to be, but it wasn't because I wanted to be, and then this moment happened in my life where someone asked me to get involved. I was sitting on the back row, and someone said, do you want to participate in what's going on around here? Now, at this moment in my story, I feel like I have to take a side note and explain something to you that really doesn't have much to do with anything, but it was in the late 90s and early 2000s, right? It was a different time, and in church, there were these things called skits and dramas. I don't know if you were around for that season. I promise it was cool in the moment. All right, we don't do it anymore because we learn better. It's actually kind of amazing that any of us love Jesus at this point, but it was, it It worked, and so I was a part of that, and all of a sudden, I was part of a community, and I fell in love with Jesus, and it set my life on this trajectory to go to Bible college and go to full-time ministry, and I landed in this awesome job in Indianapolis, and I met my wife there, and we had three kids, and it was just this killer, killer ministry, and it was a growing church, and we were seeing hundreds and even thousands of people come to faith and be baptized, and their stories were blowing us away, and it was an awesome place to be. But I always knew in my heart of hearts that God had asked us to plant a church. I knew that a long time ago. I told my wife on our first date. I said, look, we're planting a church. Well, I didn't say like you're planting. That would have been a little much for the first date. Like we'll see if you're still around. But like we're, I'm planting a church. I'd love for you to be a part of it. And this, is, this has been a long time, long time coming. And so we had this incredible ministry, this incredible church. We had the best friends in the entire world and we basically had it all. I was making more money than I ever thought I would make. We lived in a great neighborhood with great friends, and it was so comfortable. So comfortable, and it was so familiar, and I knew what I was doing, and I was kind of good at it, and people kept telling me I was good at it, and it felt so good. And I don't know about you, but in my life, comfort has been the very thing that has often kept me from God's calling on my life. God was for sure asking me to go, and it would have been so much easier to stay. And comfort for my wife, knowing that she was taken care of, and she had friends, and she was well-loved, and our kids were in a great school, and that comfort, it really almost dulled the voice of God. And my arguments back with God, is said, God, we, we would have to give up so much. We would have to give up all these relationships that we've invested in. We'd have to give up all this trajectory that the ministry's on. God, we would be giving so much up. And his only question back to me was, am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough to give things up for? Am I enough to move away? Am I enough to take a risk? And so we had to say the word yes. Yes, we got to go. And, uh, and some of you may be listening, and, and maybe as you were listening, you're like, man, it would be awesome to be called to Santa Barbara. Like, yeah, for sure. And, like, you're not wrong. It's super dope, and you should sh- for sure move and, like, be a part of our church, right? Like, just leave this place right now. Come with us. It'll be awesome, all right? Like, it's, it's the best. But here's what you need to know. Because it would be unfair for me to be up here and saying, like, you got to do something. you got to get in the fight. It's going to be awesome. Uh, when you get in the fight, you're going to get hit back. Because Paul, that first verse that we read, our guy Paul, he wasn't wrong. There's an active enemy that does not want our family to do what we're doing. There's an active enemy that does not want Trace to do what it is doing. And so in our, in our process, um, there was a day I came home, and uh, we, have, we already have three little kids, and they are enough. And uh, I, my wife handed me one of those sticks that I had seen three other times. And it had one of those marks on it that said, we were about to have another baby. And, like, I'm, I'm somewhat of a planner. And so moving across the country and starting a brand new church, that was, like, enough. Adding a baby onto it, that was a little much, all right? And, but at some point, you just say, like, there's no decisions to make. This is going to be amazing. We have three amazing kids. The fourth is going to be awesome. They're going to be a world changer. We can't wait. You start picking out names and looking at baby stuff and the whole deal, and I will never forget the day. Where We sat in the doctor's office, and we heard those words that maybe some of you have heard. I'm so sorry. And it was the 12-week checkup, and we found out that we had lost our baby at, at nine weeks. And if you've ever had the experience of a miscarriage, you know how hard that is. Because it's, it's just like never over, you know? Like with every birth announcement on Facebook, you relive it. With every Pampers commercial with the cute babies on it, you just feel like someone has what we don't get to have anymore. It it hurts. And the enemy wanted to distract and discourage us from keep moving forward on what God had placed on our hearts. And eventually we had to kind of pick ourselves up and say, we're still going and we're still going to make this happen. And we end up heading to this place that we were told was really, really beautiful and really nice. And about halfway through our cross-country road trip, we started reading the news that we were headed to a place that was experiencing the single single largest wildfire in the history of California. Our, Our new home looked like this when we were moving in. We'd sold everything, we had moved our stuff, and it was headed here. And it led to maybe the saddest welcome home picture of all time, if you've got that of our kids at the airport. This is what it looked like when we moved in. Now, luckily, their, their masks had cool teddy bears and stars on. I'm like, that helped a little bit. But we're moving in, and we have masks, and everything's on fire, and there's ash falling. And then a few weeks later, it rained in the exact wrong place at the exact wrong time. And there were mudslides that took the lives of 25 people. And you can imagine a moment in our lives, if you'll just be gracious enough and not blame us, that we thought, what have we done? Where are we? What are we doing, God? We had it all. It was so comfortable. And then God brought that same question back. He said, am I enough? Am I enough to get you through really hard times? Am I enough when it's uncomfortable? Am I enough when it's expensive? Am I enough when you don't know anybody? Am I enough to where you think that I can get you through this? And our answer today is still yes. Because for us, it comes back to the fact that if Jesus died for my sins, If Jesus gave up everything that he had, his rightful place with God, he gave up his power, he gave up his position, and he lived amongst us. And he died for my sins, and there's nothing that he can ask me that is too much. We have the same burden that Trace Church has, that there are too many people that do not know what we know. That the gospel is good news. And that Jesus offers a life of freedom that cannot be found in anything else else. And so we are committed to bringing that good news to the city of Santa Barbara. And so here's my question again. What are you going to do? In fact, these two questions might be helpful for you. What are you good at and how can you do it for Jesus? See, there's a really good chance that you are not going to pick up your life and do what we're doing. Plant a church uniquely in Santa Barbara. That'd be weird if you decided to do it because we're doing it. All right, we should do it together. But like, what are you going to do? Like right here and right now? In the city of Colorado Springs, with your friends, with your relationships, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, what are you going to do? God gave you gifts and abilities. He gave you opportunities that I don't have, that Aaron doesn't have, that no one else around you has. And if you have accepted Jesus, then it is impossible not to do something about it. It is worth it, and God is enough. And so right now, I want to close out by just praying a prayer of courage over you. I know what I'm asking is not simple, it's not easy, it may not even be clear to you right now. I want to pray a prayer that God will embolden you through His Spirit to take a next step, to take a step of changing careers, to take a step of reaching out to your neighbor, to take a step of in re- reconciling with a broken relationship, whatever He's asking you to do. I'm saying do something. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your, your Son, Grateful for your word, which is clear and compelling and often convicting. We r- repent of the moments where we argue back. We, we want to have a soft heart to where you can mold us. And we want to have a heart of courage. A spirit of boldness, not timidity, to where you can, where you can empower us to take that step. To do, do, something, do something that maybe other people think or is weird. Do something that other people think is crazy, but we know that you've called us to do it. For those right now that do not even have a clue, I pray you give them clarity. For those that have been talking themselves out of that thing for a really long time, I pray you give them courage. God, I pray that you activate this entire room this week and have us do something because you have done everything for us. It's in your good name, I pray. Amen. Would you guys do me a favor and show?